0: I believe that our most precious commodity is our focus, and it is getting spread so thin that it's a miracle we get anything done.
1: Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse.
2: Welcome to Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Matt Rouse, and today... My guest is Terry Boyle McDougall. How are you, Terry?
0: I'm great, Matt. How are you? I am
2: fantastic, except for a little bit of technical difficulty either, but we're back at it again. Let me read your bio so people know who you are. So Terry is an executive and career coach. She helps high achieving professionals remove obstacles that keep them stuck so they can enjoy more success and satisfaction in their lives and careers, and is the author of Winning the Game of Work career happiness and success on your own terms. And she's the host of the Marketing Mambo podcast. So, Terry, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you do?
0: Well, I work with high achievers who are paying a high price for their success. And what I mean by that is that if you look at them from the outside, they've got all the trappings of success, good job, making good money. People are like, what do you have to be unhappy about? But when they come to me and they sort of pull back the curtain a little bit, they're feeling anxious, stressed, may have problems with their health or in their relationships. And I work with them so that they can be more in the flow so that they're not sacrificing their success, but they're finding a place of balance where they can be successful and also have time for themselves and be happy.
2: Now, there's a definite kind of divide that I see growing in the work culture. And that is the hustle now and get it done now to get the benefit later, people. And then there is the we should have work life balance from day one, people. And there's also kind of a, you know, like a third camp in there who are the if I don't stop working, everything's going to fall apart, people. Do you do you see that? Or do you see like kind of more differentiators? I don't know if I'm overgeneralizing it a bit, but
0: Well, I definitely see the people that are afraid that if they you know, stop running 90 miles an hour with their hair on fire, that all the success that they've worked for is going to fall apart. And what I've noticed, and you and I were talking about this before you hit record, that when I was writing my book, I came across some research by a professor at Harvard Business School. His name's Tom DeLong, and he studies high achievers. And his hypothesis is that a lot of high achievers are addicted to external validation, which means that they're look, looking at what, what do other people think about what I'm doing? And they're always concerned, like, okay, if they're able to make it over the bar and the bar goes higher, they feel like, oh, I have to get over that. And if I don't, I'm not going to be successful. And, you know, if you think back to in elementary school, right, the teacher puts the gold star on your paper. And so it's at a certain point, you're rewarded by other people's expectations of you. And, Sometimes we lose touch with what we care about and it can be very easy to lose perspective and start thinking that if we're not constantly paying attention to what other people expect of us, that all of a sudden the rug's going to be yanked out from under us. And it's, it's really important to reestablish that connection with ourselves and our inner wisdom and to realize that we've got choices in our lives. And if we choose ourselves in some situations, if we choose to put boundaries in place, it does not mean that all the success that you've worked for is going to go away. I think it's just a matter of sort of shifting the perspective of it.
2: It's kind of a modern version of the, you know, 80s keeping up with the Joneses, right? If your neighbor gets a boat, you got to get a boat.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly.
2: If they get a new car, you got to get a new car. That was really, um, not to throw a, a darkness over the marketing world, but that was definitely perpetuated by mass media marketing. It was the the happy family brings home the new car and the neighbor's like watering his lawn and his mouth's open while he sees you drive by with the new car, right? And that was like teaching people, you know, the happy mom is, is on the phone and Janice down the street is telling her how great of a mom she is because she gave her kid a Pop-Tart. You know, that kind of crap is all <laughs> everywhere, right?
0: Absolutely. Well, you know what is really funny? I'm on podcasts pretty frequently and I've been on some podcasts with younger people and they'll say, do you think Instagram is perpetuating this? Like, is it worse now because of Instagram? And I just laugh and I say, well, you know, I think humans are humans, right? And probably it was TV before that. And then before that, it was just, you know, somebody riding their horse by somebody's field and being like, oh, Josiah got a new stallion. Like, I'm jealous of that. You know, it's just a it's the human condition, I think.
2: There's also this like there's been a shift in marketing because of the mass customization that's available using algorithms. I think it's it's a tiny shift that nobody sees. I shouldn't say tiny. It's it's a massive shift, but it looks tiny to people. Because there is some shared experience that people have, they don't realize because of the tiny amount of shared experience they have with others, that all of the rest of the things around them are being customized directly to them. And that customization, I think, makes the problem worse in some ways, right? Because... You know, it would be easy for me to to watch a commercial in the 80s and and see some kid has a better G.I. Joe than the other kid on TV and be like, well, you know, I don't really care about G.I. Joe or something. Right. But it's a little tougher when you're super into knitting and they show you some knitting tool that's better than everything that you have. Cause it knows the system knows you're into knitting, you know, like it could be super, so specific, you know, like it's like, well, this is a better basket weaving tool than your current underwater basket weaving tool, you know, cause it can learn exactly what you want and show you something better.
0: Yeah. I, I think you're right. That the the context is narrowed to a point that sometimes people don't realize that what they're being shown is just such a small part of the world. And they're not, you know, sort of peeling back the blinders or they're they're not able to, depending on where they're consuming their media. And it can seem like everybody has that new knitting tool or everybody has that, you know, brand new fancy car or whatever. And it's just a matter of them. That's all you're being fed. You're not seeing the people that are driving the old, beat up Pinto from the junkyard.
2: (laughs) It's funny. There's uh, where I live, which is rural Nova Scotia, right? There's a lot of people who are new to the area, but there's also a lot of people who've lived here a really long time. And anybody who's sort of kind of from here or they lived here for a really long time is still under the assumption that maybe is, is valid six to eight years ago or maybe even a little bit longer. That nobody really has any money to afford any kind of luxury because it's this rural fishing, farming community kind of thing. Right. And uh, I had somebody who's interested in opening a business. Right. And they're talking to me while our kids are at the park. We know we're pushing our kid on the swing kind of thing, having a chat. And he says, well, I'd like to open this. Right. And somebody, you know, with us was like, well, nobody here could really afford that. And I'm looking around and there's like a convertible brand new Porsche drives by. There's a half million dollar sailboat going by in the water next to us. And I'm like, how can you be saying that no one could afford a $60 gym membership? Right. Mm -hmm. So you get kind of this thing where you get bottled into your world with the people around you who are your friends, because the algorithm knows your friends share your beliefs and You know, you get this bubble, but also marketing bubbles are totally not what we are here to talk about today. So (laughs) we should reel it back in a little bit.
0: Well, I I love it. I'll probably have to have you on Marketing Mambo, because as you're talking about it, like I grew up in a rural area, too, and I and it was a resort area. So there were a lot of wealthy people that were coming in in the summer. And so I I can understand what you're talking about.
2: That's really it's a it's a weird mentality. And, you know, things are shifting all over, right? Yeah, it's just, it's the hyper-personalization is, you know, just like you were saying, do you think, you know, did somebody ask you, do you think Instagram made it worse? Well, I think the answer is actually yes to that. But it also, you know, from the perspective that we were talking about, about people's kind of work-life balance and people overworking and that kind of thing, I think that they see that too through media because, you know, anybody who follows like a Gary Vaynerchuk or somebody like this on news and, and you know, he's taking, you know, uh, like 12 minute meetings so he can squeeze an extra meeting into every hour <laughs> instead of 15 yeah. minute meetings. Right. And things like this. And and I only work, you know, 14 hours a day so I can get eight hours of sleep at night and, you know, like this kind of stuff. I think that they have to keep up with that. Right. And, and not that they have to, I mean, they believe that they have to, they say, well, if the wine TV wine library TV guy can work 14 hours a day, five days a week on his business, you know, and now he's making $750 million. Maybe I should do that. And, you know, that way I could get promoted or, you know, my business can grow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really think also just technology has enabled us to work the kind of hours that we work. I mean, you know, when I think back when I started working in the 80s, my first job, I was an administrative assistant in an advertising sales department of a magazine. And I came in, I had to take a typing test on a typewriter for my first job. And I it was the 80s. So I actually did get a PC a few months after I started, but, you know, no windows, you know, black screen, green type. But I couldn't take that home with me. You know, it was a desktop. And then that was the way it was for a long time.
2: And they weighed a ton.
0: (laughs) Yeah, even, you know, quote unquote, laptops back then probably weighed 35 pounds. You know, I've talked to people who like work for IBM, you know, like they were early adopter of mobile computing, right. But it was like a suitcase, you know, it wasn't like a nice little notebook computer like we have now that weighs like three pounds. It was like something that weighed like 10 times that much. But, you know, I've been through this whole phase of pre internet pre technology to you know i can remember when i got my first blackberry right and then you were expected to be responding to the messaging and that you could you could be working on the train and into the way uh, into work and i i think that that's just you know in the past when you left work you left work i mean it would have to be a pretty big emergency for somebody to call you at home on your home phone number but that's you know, now we basically have a supercomputer in our pocket 24-7, you know, with our with our iPhones and smartphones.
2: And, you know, there's something all, uh, all sort of interesting happened along those lines, too, in in being not only always connected, but having the power of the communication and the knowledge in a device that fits in your hand kind of psychologically makes it an extension of yourself as a person right so you know that's why you you see people get like really anxious and stuff when they don't know where their phone is or they have to have it next to them you know within arms reach 24 hours a day because psychologically it's like removing a part of your body right it's like cutting off your hand and leaving it somewhere you know
0: yeah i i I heard of a a story of a woman who got on a plane and they closed the cabin door and she realized that she had left her phone in the terminal in the waiting area. And she got up and tried to open the door to the plane to get out. And I was like, how insane do you have to be to do that? I mean, that's a federal offense. They stopped. She was arrested. She was taken to jail. I'm sure that it probably cost her thousands of dollars to get out of that. But that just shows you how addicted. And to your point, it's like a part of her body got cut off and she was going to go get it (laughs) no matter what.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I I think it's beyond a level of addiction. I think it's, you know, it would be like having something surgically added to yourself and then taken away. Right. Like, you would want that piece back. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it's it's an extension of your knowledge and information, right? And communication.
0: It's your connection to everyone. Yes. I mean, I know my husband's cell phone number, but I will tell you, I have three kids. I only know one of my kids' cell phone numbers because his is only four numbers different than mine. But my other two kids, I don't know their cell phone numbers. It's it's in my phone.
2: Yeah, your your phone knows it.
0: Yes, my phone knows it.
2: And same with knowledge and and any information that you have that pertains to your work or your life or whatever it is, it's in your phone. As long as it's in your phone and you have your phone, you have it, right? It's like having a second brain.
0: Yeah, you're secure. That's exactly what it's like. It's I it's funny because, you know, I mentioned like, I don't know, 20 years ago I got my first BlackBerry and I used to throw it in my purse and forget about it. Like that was there for my convenience. Like if I needed to make a call, I would do it. And then when I was on the train and the way to work, I would start looking at my emails to start the day. But my husband used to get mad at me all the time because he'd call me and I wouldn't answer the phone because it was in the bottom of my purse. And I kind of long for that disconnection from technology
2: just move move here
0: <laughs> yeah exactly you don't have a choice right because <laughs> the is <connectivity's laughs> not that great
2: yeah there's there's long sections that i drive on a regular basis that have no internet or phone connection whatsoever and uh, it's nice you know, also, it's good for paying attention to driving. Yes. You don't, have, you don't have the beeping of your phone. I don't know who it was who said it. I know I've mentioned it a couple times before, but it was this British guy talking about distraction and uh, and he was just saying that the, the box in your pocket will never stop screaming. So true. And I'm a big believer of turning off almost every notification that you have.
0: You know, I should figure out how to do that. <laughs> I, I think I just automatically turn and turn them on.
2: Well, here's the thing. You uh, Here's here's the decision making process is it's kind of like, you know, you remember the whole Marie Cundy thing? I think her name was where uh-huh. she's like trying to uh, teach condo. people how to, th- yep. yeah, condo, throw away all your crap kind of thing, clean up your house. And she's like, you know, thank this for its service and and fold it up and give it away to somebody else. I, yeah, I mean, lots of people <laughs> did that, right? The thing with notifications is you have to look at every single notification as if somebody interrupted your conversation. And if if the thing that they're going to tell you is if Bob liked Sarah's post is not worth somebody interrupting my conversation, then turn it off. Right. Yes. So I turn off all those notifications. I probably only have three apps that give me notifications. One of them is my internal messaging for my company. Right. So if it's an emergency, somebody can reach me kind of thing. You know, my phone ringer is literally always turned off. So it's only on vibrate. If I don't want somebody to call me, they don't call me.
0: Yeah, minus two, actually.
2: And I have a couple other ones that are just, you know, like where they don't send enough notifications for me to make the effort to turn it off. Such a time saver. My God.
0: Yeah. And you know what, I'm a shiny object person. So it is, That is tough for me. And I I believe that our most precious commodity is our focus. And it is getting spread so thin that it's a miracle we get anything done. That's probably why most people have to work 14 hours a day.
2: That's right. Spend two hours a day reading notifications.
0: (laughs) Or or getting like, oh, what was I doing? Uh, You know, what was I doing before I got interrupted? Right. So
2: switching cost.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I talk to my clients a lot about the Pomodoro, you know, where you're just focusing on one thing for a certain amount of time that you are turning off everything you're, you're dedicating yourself to that, or, you know, task batching where you're not just trying to like, answer an email and, you know, write a check or, you know, whatever, like sit down and do one thing at a time right? That you get a lot of efficiencies from doing that kind of thing. And and then you feel better about yourself because you're getting stuff done.
2: You know, what's interesting on that part is I was listening to an interview with Dr. Robert Caldini, who wrote Persuasion and Influence. There is something called focus bias, right? And focus bias is when something happens, like some kind of cause and effect thing happens, you are more likely to say that the cause is whatever you're focused on. Yeah. And if your focus is constantly shifting from thing to thing to thing to thing, because you're getting this email and this notification and this thing, you have a really good chance that you are going to make the incorrect assumption about why something else occurred. Right. So that could be like, you know, you read an email that, Bob from accounting has been late for the third day in a row and you look at your company's sales data and you go, well, you know, obviously my, our sales are down because our employees aren't getting to work on time, which is not the case. Right. But because you're focused on the wrong thing, it's giving you the wrong conclusion.
0: I, I think that there is probably something to that and also not having enough time to, you know, focus on the right data points, right. To think, to Just to think, right? I think sometimes we're so busy that we don't have time to just take time to blue sky and think and innovate. It's super interesting. And believe me, I see a lot of people that just really believe that if they slow down for one second, that the sky is going to fall. And I'll encourage people to, why don't you test that? (laughs) Why don't you leave early today and see what happens, right? Is the building still going to be standing when you show up tomorrow? (laughs) And guess what? It usually is.
2: There's a um, kind of an interesting thing. I'm, I'm definitely not a person who's known for taking time off as as it were, but. Actually, I have a couple people that I do work with on a regular basis. I told them I was taking Friday afternoon off because my wife and I are going away for the weekend. And they were like, what (laughs) is going on? (laughs) They're like, like, but seriously, though, I mean, I I take time during the day often, which is why people don't see it. You know, I take an hour and a half, take my kid to swimming class and hang out with her, you know, at nine in the morning and stuff like that. So a lot of times people do have kind of a work life balance that you may not see. I think also, you know, people are always kind of comparing themselves to the output of others, but they're comparing themselves to the output of others that they see. And, you know, to go back to the Gary Vaynerchuk example, he's got a team of, you know, as of a year ago, had 17 people doing his social media. And so if you look at all the stuff he's putting out, you're going, wow, that guy does a lot. (laughs) But it's not him.
0: Right. Exactly. I mean, I I tell people that all the time is like, don't believe what you see, right? And and going back to what we were saying earlier about like, oh, they just bought a new house or they got a new Porsche or whatever. You do not know what is going on behind the scenes there, right? Those people could be bankrupt. Their dad could be some multi-billionaire and they have a big trust fund. You just never know.
2: You could be a Porsche dealer.
0: Exactly, right? That could be borrowed for all, you know. That that could be their company car. You just never know what the situation is and and you know, I just think just start off with the fact that you're okay as you are, right? Like you're unique, you're a unique person, you got unique gifts, you're here for your own unique purpose, and comparing yourself to somebody else who has a different purpose is pointless.
2: I think it's difficult for people who are in the throes of it to kind of take a step back and say, what are the things that actually make me happy and not what are the things I'm trying to achieve? Because I think that's going to bring me some kind of magical happiness potion that I don't have right now.
0: I see it all the time. People are like, uh, oh, you know, they are working for years and years to get promoted or some other goal. And then they get there and they're like, is this all there is? <laughs> Why, do I, why am I not ecstatically happy because I got promoted to VP? You know, it's not about that. I mean, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with advancement and achievement, but you're still going to be the same person that you are when you get to that corner office, right? So if, if other things in your life aren't working, getting that title or that new zero on your paycheck is not going to make that difference. And I do think also, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times when I start working with people, I'll ask them, like, what do you want? And a lot of times they'll say they don't know what they want, or they'll, they'll be talking about what their brain's telling them they want. And I tell people to, you know, check in with your heart and your gut, because I think if you go deep, you're going to be able to say the thing that you actually want. But a lot of times we're afraid to say it, though, because we're afraid if we, if we admit it. We might have to do it or we're afraid that we'll be disappointed that we won't get it.
2: Yeah, there's also this long-term goal making is is a great idea, I think. But one problem with long-term goal making is you're not the same person by the time you get there as you were when you started making the decision for that goal. Yeah, it's true. Man, you know, like probably one of the greatest things I ever did was sell my house and give away all my shit and move across the country. and. You would think that giving away all of the things that I worked my whole life to get would be a bad thing, but it was the opposite. Did you feel free? Oh, yeah. I mean, you just we had to fit everything that our family of three owned into a seven by seven by eight foot box, because during COVID, you couldn't have a moving truck go across the border. So we had to fit it in a pod. And the value of everything we couldn't fit in that pod to get a bigger pod was an extra $8,000. So if it wasn't worth $8,000, it wasn't worth buying a bigger thing. And we were just like, you know what, let's just get rid of it and spend that money buying new stuff. And when we did get to the other end, not only do we not miss any of the stuff that we gave away, we got to think hard about what is the stuff that we want to have in our home and our life. And we didn't buy hardly anything. I mean, We have a house that has almost no furniture and has shelves with mostly nothing on them. And all we used to do is stick crap, try to find a place to put it, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Exactly.
2: And you know what? I have a way better time on my weekend riding my lawn tractor, mowing my lawn for three hours while I'm looking at the, you know, the Annapolis River Valley than I did going to Target every weekend to try and find more crap to buy.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I I wanted to make a comment about the long term goals. You know, I always look at it like, you know, if you check in with yourself and you feel like there's a particular direction that you want to go in based on, you know, what your heart's telling you, what you feel like your true inner desire is, and you start walking in that direction, I mean, you might have a North Star that's guiding you. But once you start walking in that direction, you can choose to take any branch off that path on the way. And a lot of times we don't know what we don't know. But if you start walking in a direction that feels right, you're a lot more likely to find things that feel aligned with who you are and and things that are fun and that you find satisfaction with. But you just got to start, right? Like it's, it's a, there's no perfect path. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. Right. You just have to kind of say, like, what what feels right to me? I'm going to start.
2: Yeah, I think there's also the satisfaction of your work can change dramatically over time, depending upon what happens with your industry, your company, your life, all those kind of things. Right.
0: Totally. Yeah. Well, as a marketer that got her start in the 80s, guess what, right? It's revolutionized since then. There was no digital marketing. There was no internet. I worked in direct mail, (laughs) you know, and I found myself being a a marketing director and I was like very out of touch because, you know, I rose to a certain level and I never had to do the hands-on stuff with SEO and SEM and all that stuff. Right. Um, And now I think that CMOs are expected to be very digital native, you know, and, and I wasn't part of the reason it was one of the factors why I decided to change careers, but yeah, I mean, you can have certain goals and then maybe, you know, I wanted to be a chief marketing officer. I got to head marketing at a divisional level in the last place that I worked, I never got to CMO, but the interesting thing was that when I got close enough to the CMO and I was in meetings with the CMO, I was like, I don't want that job. (laughs) The things that I liked about marketing were not done in that job, right? So you you can set your, you know, your sights on something, but then maybe when you get close, she'll be like, oh, I really don't want that. And you can change your mind at any time. I, I like to say that we're always at choice, right? You can one day say you want something and then you can change your mind the next day if something changes.
2: For sure. What do you think is the most common problem you see with people who are kind of in the high level business owner executive entrepreneur area you know they're 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 making their six figures right and and they've got all the things and the money and the power and the things that they want to do. What's the problem that most of them encounter do you think?
0: Well, one of the things I see with a lot of high achieving people is is that they've gotten to where they are by relying on their own talents. And as they rise, whether it's as a business owner and they're growing their business or they're in a corporate environment and they're rising within the organization, it is learning to identify and use the leverage points so that they're getting more output for their own effort. And the biggest mistake that I see is that they rely on themselves too much and that they don't learn how to delegate fully. They don't figure out like, how do I impart the knowledge that I have to other people and trust them to do the work? Or they don't step back enough from the day to day to say, you know, if things aren't going well, sometimes people have kind of the superhero syndrome, where if something goes wrong, they'll just dive in and save the day. And sometimes what they need to do is step back and say, what is the persistent pattern here? And how can we fix this with new processes or systems, right? Like you don't want to have to keep putting out the same fire. You know, if, if there's an electrical short, fix the electrical short. <laughs> don't, you know, run around with your fire extinguisher and put it out every other day. And I think that that's one of the biggest things is that people just don't step back enough to see the bigger picture and also understand the opportunity cost of the way that they've been operating. If they're doing something that they could potentially delegate to somebody they are not doing something that only they can do. They're not doing their highest value work.
2: Nice. Yeah, I've, I've seen that a ton of times, in, especially in the agency world, right? The owner of the agency knows the majority of the things about the majority of the topics and is always diving in to save the day every single time you know, me included, but.
0: It's gonna limit the growth, right? Because you can multiply it, if you can cascade your knowledge and responsibility down to people below you. And as they rise, you know, you as the leader are gonna rise with them.
2: Yeah, if you don't have the right process and procedure in place, what happens is you hire a bunch of employees and it just creates more fires. And then you spend all your time putting out fires instead of some of your time putting out fires. And then it becomes not cost effective to have employees. You could you could tell we've done this before.
0: And a lot of times what happens too is that they'll say, see, that didn't work. So I'm the only one that can be trusted with this. And what they don't see is that there's a big gap in what they could be doing to impart that knowledge, and they're not. And a lot of times it means that they're going to have to take some risks or they're going to have to also really examine themselves. A lot of times when people are smart and talented. They're intuitively that way, or they've done it for so long that they cannot step out of themselves to say how they did it. That's hard, but that's necessary for them to be able to impart that knowledge to others. So sometimes they have to step back and be uncomfortable and be like, let me think, like, what was it like when I first started this? What would somebody need to know in order to be able to step in and do what I do? And honestly, sometimes there's fear, too. Like, well, if I give up that part of my job, what am I going to do? Am I going to be useless? That means I'm going to have to step into something I haven't mastered yet, and that's going to be scary. But it could be exciting, too. Right.
2: And nobody wants to make themselves dispensable, right? Except that. Everybody's pretty much dispensable in a corporate world. I mean, let's face it, uh, there's very few people who have so much tribal knowledge that they are 100% needed, you know, and irreplaceable, right?
0: Well, it frees them to be able to do something else. If you're a business owner and you systematize your knowledge, you can sell your business. Okay. Sometimes businesses aren't sellable because all of the knowledge resides with the owner. But if you, If you productize that, if you systematize it so that it's within the business, that enables you to sell that to someone else and for you to walk away with a bag of money.
2: Yeah. Or you can pass that on to your kids or something like that, or, you know, your spouse or whatever, something happens to you. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, God forbid you have all the knowledge of the business and you pass away. The business dies with you, right? Because all the value was in your head. So let me ask you this question: As someone who helps other people level up their business, what's the next level up for you?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I have a proposal that I am doing with, uh, funny enough, somebody that I went to high school with, and we reconnected on LinkedIn a couple of years ago. And he, at that point, had said like Hey, I want to talk to you after after the holidays about maybe doing executive coaching for my team." And so I. I'm going from working individually to going in and working with leadership teams at corporations. And so this is actually my first proposal to go in and and do a whole leadership program for a year. And that's that's really my next step is to scale.
2: Nice. There's always, 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 always benefits in scale. And it's an exciting time, right? You get to do something a little new, a little more exciting. You know, there's a bigger payoff at the end. It's kind of like treasure hunting. The the treasure gets bigger each time you scale your business. And you got to go and do all the things you got to do to find the treasure and dodge the obstacles and...
0: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like working with individuals, even if they're in leadership roles, it's very satisfying and it's helpful, but it's like onesies and twosies. It does have an impact in businesses. I mean, I hear back from my clients about, you know, what they're able to do individually or what they're able to do, you know, to leverage more, you know, productivity out of their teams because they're leveling up. But when you can go in and work with the leadership team and teach them tools that can cascade throughout the organization, it can make a difference for the entire organization because culture really starts at the top, right? And if you're teaching them and coaching them to perform better, they can then take that and coach people under them and teach them and all of a sudden you've got an organization that's getting a lot more productivity out of all the resources that they've invested in.
2: Yeah. And there's also, as you can kind of get everyone at your organization on board with a singular focus and a singular mission, and everybody's rowing the boat the same direction. Yes. The benefits aren't just productivity, right? There's better job satisfaction both your clients and your employees stay longer, right? They have better lives, your costs for things like time off work and stuff like that go down. So it actually saves you money. Just, it's, it's all around benefit. Look, I should be selling your course, by the way. Can you hear this? (laughs) I told I'm like, just like selling it.
0: I know. I know you're doing a great job.
2: That's right. All right, people buy it.
0: (laughs) It reminded me of something that um, it, I use this, this tool and it's, it's so valuable because most organizations are so focused on execution that they don't realize that there's a foundation that needs to be built first in order for execution to go off well. And that is you've got to communicate clearly. People need to understand what they're supposed to be doing and they need to receive the message and understand it. There needs to be Like good relationships where people are trusting that, okay, if I step in and I do this, that my peers, my partners, my stakeholders are going to receive this, you know, like I can trust them, right? They've got my back. And then their alignment. Like we have to all, like you said, be rowing in the same direction and way too often organizations take the shortcut of like, you know, we're under the gun. We've got to make the numbers this quarter and they don't build that foundation. They're just like, everybody go out and execute. And then what you end up with is like people doing different things. They don't fit together. The timelines are wrong. Somebody's overspending. They're not going in the right direction and it can feel frustrating to take the time to do that planning and to to build that foundation. But, you know, it's pay me now or pay me later, right? Either you're going to spend the time to build it or you're going to learn the hard way that you should have done it.
2: Or companies spend all their effort and research and time and money doing research on how can I improve my customer experience, but never do any time on how do I communicate that customer experience internally to my teams so that everybody's actually on the same page and talking about communications? geez, there's a, company here I won't mention their name but they've got the word communications in their name and I cannot (laughs) get them to communicate (laughs) with me at all like it's just the most frustrating thing in the world you know they're (laughs) like call us for information and you call and they never answer the phone and you leave them a message and they never call you back you're like oh my god I just want to like drive down there and like make you answer the phone come on people answer your phones anyway Terry, if somebody wants to reach out to you to learn more uh, or they want to get your book, how do they do those things?
0: Well, they can reach out to me through my website, which is com. I'm also very active on LinkedIn and my handle there is terribmcdougall. If people are interested in my book, which is called Winning the Game of Work, Career Happiness and Success on Your Own Terms, it's available on Amazon worldwide.
2: Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today.
0: Matt, thanks for having me. It was fun talking to you.
1: This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business.